We are today going to talk about media and uh, the whole issue of uh, digital media, or you might have seen on our handout, digital world. But before we do that, let me back up real quickly and mention that if you're a visitor today, I think we may have one or two, uh, that first of all, you can uh, go to PrestonwoodExamine.org and find some of the material that we'll be talking about. Uh, Fred has been very good, um, and in the past, uh, Parker has been, of putting that on the website. So actually, what I'll be presenting right now, you can actually see. If you want to go there, you can put it on your smartphone or your tablet. If you say, we went through that too quickly, or I want to share this with my children or my grandchildren about media or something like that, then that is certainly the case, and it's available. And on your handouts, you notice at the very bottom there, it has some of those links to you as well. And so those are just a couple of resources. And during the kind of the summer months, it gives us a chance to do some topical issues. And of course, today, as you can see, we're going to talk about media. Now, when we do that, let me just hasten to add that I'm in the media. If you think at the end of this, we're going to tell everybody to take their smartphones out here and dump them in the fountain here. No, that's not it. Uh, or tell you that you can't ever listen to a program or watch a program. That's not the case. But we did want to give you some information information about this, and if you find yourself saying, well, I'd like a little more information, I brought a couple of the booklets I've written in the past, one on a biblical view of social media, got about a half a dozen of those up front here, and that gets into the issue of social media, maybe you have children or grandchildren to spend a lot of time in front of the screen, that'll give you some of the facts there, also deals a little bit with the censorship by social media, which leads into the other one on media bias, and let me just hasten to add that as we get into this, I think almost all of us recognize these are concerns. What I'm hoping to do is have enough information that might, in one way or another, encourage you uh, to maybe rethink your priorities. We've been through a time with the pandemic and the lockdown where all of us probably spent entirely too much time in front of the screen. Uh, oftentimes when our kids are home during the summer months, they spend a lot of time in front of the screen. So I'm really just giving you some of these facts and pieces of information so that you can make wise decisions. As a program note, let me also mention some of you saying, when are we going to talk about critical race theory? We're going to do that next week. I'm going to give you advance notice for two reasons. First of all, if you say, that's too controversial subject, I don't want to even hear about it, you can miss next week. But also, I've had some of you say, no, I want to bring somebody next week, so we'll focus on that. I also was talking to Matt Mullins. I know Pastor Graham is about ready to do a series, one of which will be on critical race theory. And I was asking, do you know when he's doing that? Because knowing my luck, he'll do it next week. And then I'll just be saying, as Pastor Graham said, although I think we're going to get back to the essential gospel, but I'm not sure. So we'll see how that plays out. But I just wanted you to know that with a week in advance. And as we get into this, let's recognize again the value of media. It is such a time saver. When I first published my first couple of books, every time I had to look up something, I had to go to the SMU library, I had to go to the Dallas Public Library. Now just a click on Google helps usually to answer that question. But not only can it be a time saver, it can be an incredible time waster. One of the guys that uh, used to be the uh, host of our Millennial Roundtable, Nick Pitts, actually on his phone had a 
whole uh, category called time wasters. And he put in Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and all those. So he was acknowledging that sometimes you can spend too much time in social media. So let's, if we can, get into that for just a few minutes. And the first of those is to recognize how incredibly influential media is in our lives. One of the persons, the individuals I interview quite often is George Barna. And years ago, he did a study on the sources of significant influence. It was published in Christianity Today. And he concluded that uh, some of the most significant sources of influence, no surprise, but he was able to get some quantitative data for that, are movies, television, the Internet, music, public policy and law and family. And if you think about that, the first five of those are all aspects of the media. When he wrote that article in Christianity Today, it generated an enormous number of letters to the editor. And that's because one of the things he concluded was that the church was not even in the top 12 sources of influence. And so lots of times when I'm talking lately about the survey that Pro Ministries has just done, by the way, if you go to Christian Post, you'll see an article today by Steve Cable and Kirby Anderson that actually showed up on that. Uh, people oftentimes will say, why is that? And I said, well, because young people especially are spending so much time in the media. Uh, sometimes up to 15 hours a day when you add up all the screens, the cell phones, computer screens, video screens, uh, movie screens, and all the rest. Uh, 15 hours a day times 7, and you are trying to counteract that with one-hour sermon on Sunday, who wins? And so you can see that media, very significant source of influence. One aspect of that is uh, to look at some of the surveys that have been done on the amount of media usage by youth. Now, these were done a number of years ago by the Kaiser Family Foundation, and they, I think, have just stopped doing it because I kept waiting for the updates to come down. I think they've just sort of given up. How do you even measure this anymore? Of course, if they could get access to Apple, I know that Apple each week gives you a summary of how much screen time on just your phone. But again, let's go back, and this goes back quite a while, but still, it gives you an idea of what was happening even in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, and these were numbers on a screen that I then created this graph to illustrate this. But look at uh, something as simple as television. You have television increased over time. You have the red one is music. That increased dramatically because of the iPad. Computer usage increased over time. Video games increased over time. You might think, well, did anything decrease? Yeah, reading decreased over time. And then, of course, movies. And I think that number has gone up dramatically because of Netflix and things of that nature. And so you can see that looking at children 8 to 18, we're spending even a decade ago, uh, ten hours of input in media over an eight-hour period. You say, how do you get ten hours over eight hours? Multitasking. The TV's on, the computer's on, they're listening to music, and they're supposedly doing their homework, right? You've been down that road. So you can see that uh, most people now are figuring that number's in the 15-hour range, and it just illustrates again how the various devices that we have have made it much easier to just consume enormous amounts of media.
A good way to illustrate that, then, is just to take one example of that, just television alone. And that's one that's very useful, I find, for no other reason than the fact that when you look at this, we have the A.C. Nielsen Company spending millions and millions of dollars to find out which TVs are on, who's watching them, and how, which channel they're tuned to. And so when you look at this, the average young person today... By the time he or she graduates from high school, we'll have seen 22,000 hours of television. They will have spent about 11,000 hours in a classroom. So that gives you an idea of just the incredible amount of television input. And a lot of people say, well, that number can't be right because that's not my household. Yeah, just the fact you're here right now means your TV's probably not on. Although this week probably on a lot because of the Olympics, right? But, uh, you know, if you've ever been at church visitation here at Prestonwood, and I've done that before, you go out there, you go into some of these homes, we're talking about a visitation today, and the TV's just always on. It's kind of like this electronic fireplace, so it's just always glowing in the corner there. So, But nevertheless, look at that, 22,000 hours of television. That's just the sheer quantity. What is the quality? 16,000 televised homicides, 200,000 acts of violence, 640,000 um, TV commercials. And so, again, you can see that we are raising a generation. This would be the Generation Y and Generation Z in an experiment. It's a media experiment with a media storm. And so if this causes you to reevaluate your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, maybe your own input of media, it would certainly be the case. Well, how do we think about some of this? Because for just a few minutes, I want to say, well, does the Bible say anything about media? Not directly. I mean, I've never seen the words DVD or um, I'm Internet in here or anything like that. But it does have us uh, really begin to think about uh, what we allow to come into our eye gate and our ear gate. And so let's think about that for just a minute. Second Timothy two. Verse 22, here's where the Apostle Paul, one of his last letters, maybe his very last letter for all we know, and of course when he tells Timothy to avoid that, he then talks about what we need to focus our time and attention on, and that is to, of course, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So again, if that was true in the first century when we didn't have all of the ubiquitous nature of media, how much true is that here today? Let's think of a different example. Uh, Colossians 3.8. We first of all see in Colossians 2.8 that Paul talks about the fact that we should not be taken captive by false philosophy. But then in Colossians 3.8, he even says what you really need to do is rid yourselves of these things. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. And so again, I think it is an understanding that we certainly can benefit from media, but at the same time, if we begin to see things manifest in our Christian life, or in the lives of our children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews or others, we may want to just begin to come to a conclusion that I learned very early on when I was programming computers, and that is, guy go, garbage in, garbage out. You know, if this input in your life is affecting your behavior, your language, then I think a wise and discerning Christian would reevaluate what is coming into their lives. And that's really what I want us as Christians to think about here today. Um, instead of focusing just on the negative, let's also talk about the positive. 
And certainly here we see the Apostle Paul reminds us again that if anything we should, as believers, focus on those things which are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable um, and anything that is excellent or praiseworthy because we really want to begin to evaluate what is coming in our eye gate, what's coming in our ear gate. And so I'm not trying to say that we're going to destroy all of our media. We are the beneficiaries of so much. And what a great opportunity to use this media to advance the gospel. If you are out on social media, you will see how Pastor Graham, Greg Laurie have, for example, been using Instagram in a very effective way. Um, O.S. Hawkins, uh, I see many of his posts on Twitter, all sorts of other ways in which these can be effective tools. But let's use those tools in a way that I think can advance the gospel. Let's if we can, though, uh, one of the books that I do, uh, I don't know if we have it up here today, but we will bring some copies in the future, uh, talk about is in my chapter on media in Christian ethics in plain language. I point out some obvious things I think most of us know. First of all, the media presents an unreal view of the world. Here's a newsflash. Reality TV isn't always reality, right? So that is certainly the case. It oftentimes presents an oversimplified view of the world. Predictable plots, one-dimensional characters, life is much more complex than that. But maybe the greatest concern is how media desensitizes its viewers. Well, do we have any evidence uh, in that book or in some of these booklets about the impact that media does have in the way we see the world, how we think, and then how we act? And I thought for just a minute I might focus on the whole issue of television to just give you one illustration. Uh, this is probably one of the more famous studies. There are many of those out there, but this is just one that has received a great deal of press, and it appears in psychology today, so you can read it if you'd like. But there was research done at the Annenberg School of Communication, University of Pennsylvania, by George Gerbner and Larry Gross. And uh, the research later was, uh, first it was in academic journals, but later then showed up in a popular form in psychology today called The Scary World of TV's Heavy Viewer. It was a good way to demonstrate that what you see does affect the way you perceive the world. And here's just a couple of examples that came from the research. First of all, they found that heavy TV viewers tended to overestimate their likelihood of being involved in a violent crime. Why? Because they see a lot of violence on television. And so compared to other individuals, they tended to, on surveys, overestimate their likelihood of being involved in a violent crime. They tended to overestimate the percentage of people in white-collar occupations, doctors, lawyers, people in business. Why? Because those stories oftentimes are about them. And number three, they tended to, amazingly, vastly overestimate the number of Americans compared to the rest of the world. Why? Because most of the programs are about Americans. Now, the issue is not that you walk out of here today knowing the exact percentage of Americans compared to the rest of the world. But the point I'm making is, is if these kinds of things which we can quantify, your likelihood of being involved in a violent crime, number of people in a white-collar occupation, a number of Americans compared to the rest of the world, if those things are skewed, would it also make sense that other things that are hard to quantify could also be skewed, like materialism, consumerism, sexuality, and those? And I think you could prove that certainly it affects an individual's worldviews. Okay, does it affect behavior? 
I'm going to give you some that relate more to young people because I oftentimes speak on this to young people. But you have a number of surveys that have come out over the years that have shown that not only seeing things on television affect a person's worldview, it also affects their subsequent behavior. Uh, the book of Proverbs says, as a man thinketh, so is he. And so as you think sometimes is actually how you act. The study that came in the journal Pediatrics came out years ago found that adolescents who watched a lot of sexual images on television were more likely to have the barriers towards first sexual uh, experience drop, and so they were more likely to be sexually involved. Follow-up study even found that young girls that saw sex on television were more likely to get pregnant. So, first of all, sex. How about violence? Well, again, this one was what's called a meta-study, over a thousand different studies, which included studies from three different attorney generals under three different administrations, both Republican and Democrat, all concluded that there seemed to be a causal connection between lots of visual media and aggressive behavior in some children. Now, they put the weasel words in there because they don't want to say that just because somebody watched lots of violent images, they're going to be the next a serial killer. But there is, as you might imagine, some real connections between a person's worldview and the worldview that's influenced by media and subsequent behavior. That sort of makes sense. If you've been a parent, you know what I'm talking about. If you see kids that see a lot of violence on television, and then they act it out a few minutes later on their siblings, you know. And so we've seen these kinds of things before. So these are not necessarily dramatic studies, but I think, as I've said so often on my radio program, we spend millions and millions of dollars to basically come to the same conclusion that the average woman with common sense has about her family. And that's certainly what we have found. What about this idea of worldview? I wanted to focus on that for just a minute, and that will also get us into questions about bias in the media and some of the studies that have been done. But when you think about worldview, the first thing I think we're going to have to do is really prepare our young children and teenagers to think critically when they watch television or watch movies, because one of the themes is, of course, naturalism. You've got Richard Dawkins and um, certainly uh, Bill Maher and Peter Singer, Christopher Hitchens. You're going to get uh, lots of times, especially in all these science programs, a heavy dose of naturalism and atheism, which is why we try to get you reading and looking at some of the material from the Institute for Creation Research and know that there are alternative viewpoints that uh, oftentimes don't get presented in the media. In addition to that, you have just a whole emphasis now, especially in the media, on pantheism. Who's that character over there? You know, Yoda, right? You know, and um, Deepak Chopra, uh, the Dalai Lama, Shirley MacLaine, just all sorts of sort of pantheistic ideas that are being presented to now in the media. Uh, the next one would be the issue of the occult and Gnosticism, uh, the Da Vinci Code, Harry Potter, the Twilight series, the Matrix, and those kinds of things, uh, which again um, are very interesting entertainment, but we need to have some discernment when we see some of those programs as well. And not to leave out the issue of sensuality, I had to work real hard to try to find some images that wouldn't turn you into a pillar of salt here, but nevertheless, you recognize how sensual this has become. I've had television executives say in one of the media sessions that we did at National Religious Broadcaster, we're showing things today on television we wouldn't have shown in the movies a couple of years ago. So that is the case. 
So at this point, uh, some of you might have teenagers or you may have teenage grandchildren and you say, okay, smart guy, do you have any material that might help them be more effective? And I wanted to mention a couple of books that I think very highly of. Lael Arrington's a good friend. I got her degrees from the University of Texas at Dallas, but now is, I think she's in North Carolina, but wrote a very good book years ago called World Proofing Your Kids. And especially if you have children that are maybe in grade school, middle school, or grandchildren of that age, very good book. Because when even at a young age, and I was watching some uh, clips last night about even the things that are showing up on the Disney Channel. Uh, you know, how do you kind of even think through some of that? And I think that's one of the best books, helping moms prepare their kids to navigate the turbulent times. So this will work at different age-appropriate areas. Okay, some of us have teenagers or grandchildren that are teenagers. What about that? So link the best book, Dr. Kathy Cook. She's right over here in Fort Worth, and it's called Screens and Teens, Connecting Your Kids with a Wireless World, and very good material about the concerns, which we're going to get in just a minute, about how these screens are sort of reprogramming our brains, but also just about how to think through those teen years. Because by the time they get in their teen years, they're not watching TV so much. They're on the smartphones, right? So that's kind of a different kind of set of screens, or they're playing video games and all of that. So these two books are Christian, but I thought I'd mention this book also, Glow Kids, is not a Christian book. But it illustrates that even non-Christians who couldn't possibly sign the doctrinal statement of Prestonwood are also looking at the whole issue of screen addiction and writing about that. So that's just another book that I thought I might mention, because this isn't just a Christian issue. It is becoming an issue for educators of different stripes. And I know we have some teachers in here, and I think any teacher that would be here right now would just say, you know, it was bad enough with television. I had trouble keeping the kids' attention. Now with screens, it's even more difficult to keep in their kids' attention. And so that's kind of one of the great challenges there in terms of worldview. But let me for just a minute maybe talk a little bit about uh, media bias, because some of you might say, well, what kind of studies do we have there? And I thought, first of all, I'd go back to some of the classic studies. When I was at Georgetown University, a friend of mine, Dr. Robert Lichter, who was at George Washington University at the time, and Stanley Rothman, actually went and did a study of the people in the news media. Now, this was during the 1980s, but I'm going to update it in just a minute. But this is the classic study because they interviewed so many individuals, ABC, NBC, CBS, the Associated Press, United Press International, the Washington Post, the New York Times, on and on and on. I mean, just incredible studies, which because it was one of the first done, uh, you got really good answers from the people that were part of what are called the media elite. These are the people that determine what you see, read, and hear. First of all, they found, as you can see there, they were liberal. Oh, big shock. No, it was a shock even to them, because in 1984, when most of the country was voting for Ronald Reagan, he won 49 out of 50 states, still 80% of the media lead voted for Walter Mondale. So that shows you that even in those situations, fairly liberal. The more important one for us is very secular. Back then, they found that 86% of the media elite seldom or never attend religious services. 
They don't go to church or synagogue. They don't know people that go to church or synagogue. A more recent study, interestingly enough, by Charles Murray, actually identified that when you look at bubbles, that is, places that people that live in a bubble, because sometimes they talk about, you know, Highland Park as a bubble. Well, that's nothing like the real bubble. The real bubble is New York City. They found um, that they are living in some of the bubbliest zip codes in the country. They just don't live in our world. Uh, they live in a very different world. One of the questions on the survey, which showed up in National Public Radio, was, do you know an evangelical? <laughs> also, have you ever ridden in a pickup truck? Have you ever been to an Applebee's? Have you ever been to a Walmart? When they go, no, 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 they're a very different world than you and I live in, okay? Because that gives you a little bit of a sense. By the way, the second most bubbliest group, Silicon Valley, which we'll get to in just a minute. But again, you can also see on various issues, very humanistic. And what was so interesting, since we've been talking about television, they went back after talking news media and then looked at television executives. Now, some of those people are in New York City. Most of them are in what? Hollywood, Burbank, um, and that area, right? And so, as a result of, of a variety of places, uh, Beverly Hills, that kind of stuff. And they found, interestingly enough, that even though they were somewhat removed from a religion, they did have a religious upbringing. And that is, there are a fair number of people that are Jewish that live and work in Hollywood and work in the television industry. But, you know, maybe they went to a bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah years ago, but they're pretty much secular Jews. Again, found they're very liberal. But here's the interesting thing. The most secular institution in the country is in the area of television. You know, you think about that. When you turn on a TV set, very secular. And you might say, yeah, but aren't there Christians in Hollywood? Oh, of course, you know, and they work on some of these uh, particular studios that are family-friendly, faith-friendly, but then the others are much more secular. And so you can kind of see that we're dealing with uh, a need for us to actually be discerning when we turn on our television set or we open up a newspaper, go to a website. Does that mean we can't watch television? No, but it means that we're going to have to have, again, my favorite word, discernment. Something else that I talk about in this book is how today media is really affected a great deal by what's called the narrative. Cheryl Atkinson used to be at CBS, wrote a couple of books. Her most recent one is called Slanted. She has a whole section on that, but the narrative is something that is oftentimes in the minds of the reporter and the editor. And that is that, uh, for example, the science is settled, that uh, climate change is in a major emergency, whatever that might be, that vaccines are good and there aren't any alternative views, you know, whatever that might be. The narrative changes, by the way, from a narrative that said it was a conspiracy theory to believe the virus came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology to now to maybe that's the case. So the narratives move around a great deal. But the point she makes is, is that oftentimes the narrative causes individuals when they're collecting information they're doing interviews to only see the facts that reinforce the narrative and as a result sometimes contrary information gets eliminated and so it isn't always a deliberate bias it has to do with a worldview we see the world this way we've already sort of made up our minds we see the facts that actually affirm that 
Um, it's confirmation bias, and that's the story. Or even if you try to present the alternative view, then it goes to the editor who actually says that's kind of an irrelevant fact and it gets eliminated. And she gives some incredible stories of times in which people sent her out to do a story and she came back to her editor saying, I know we think the story is this, but actually the story is this. And they would say, well, then we'll just not do the story, because they'd already had a preconceived idea of what the facts might be. And so, again, the power of narrative, very significant. One last one, then I'm going to move on. But I thought it would be good for you to know this study, which has been very well documented. Uh, the first time I interviewed Professor Tim Grossclose, he was at UCLA. Uh, more recently, he now is at George Mason University. And he, at the people that were at UCLA, said, you know, bias is in the minds of the perceiver. So can we come up with some kind of quantitative way to actually begin to show how liberal or how conservative something might be? And, of course, you've had some of these voting records and things like that and created what was called a political quotient. What was so intriguing about that is, is once he applied that political quotient, he found that most of the media outlets were left to center. There were a few that were kind of centrist at the time. I think it was like the Drudge Report, Washington Times, a couple like that. Maybe NPR was close to that. And, you know, a few conservative, Fox, and a few. But overall, he came to the very interesting conclusion that if the media were just a little more open to presenting both points of view, most Americans would view the world more like the people in Orange County or like the state of Kansas. But he went back and looked at then the individuals that were actually the key reporters and applied the political quotient to each one of them. And here's the most arresting thing out of the study. If you took all the journalists in America that actually determined what you see, read, and hear and made them a congressional district, they'd be the most liberal congressional district in America. More liberal than, you know, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in Berkeley or, of course, uh, Nancy Pelosi's district in San Francisco. More liberal than, the, I think, what they think is one of the most liberal ones in Massachusetts that uh, Barney Frank used to be ahead of. So, again, does that mean you shouldn't watch the news? No. But I think it, again, suggests you want to have discernment. Well, just before we end, though, what is, are these um, social media and media devices doing to our brains? And it's been kind of intriguing because some of the studies that have come out have been well documented. But I thought I would start out by using a science fiction movie that most of you probably remember. Remember 2001? Remember when, you know, Hal, the computer, starts going crazy? And so Dave Bowman now has to start disconnecting the circuits. I don't think that, that would look like that now, but nevertheless, it worked at the time. And so Hal, the computer, says, Dave, my mind is going. I can feel it. I can feel it. And that's actually, interestingly enough, how um, Nicholas Carr started his book, what the Internet is doing to our brains. He says, I can feel it, too. Over the past few years, I've had this uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neurocircuitry, reprogramming the memory. And he wrote this first in Atlantic Magazine, then produced a whole book on it, and points out that, you know, it used to be that when he would sit down and read a book, he'd start reading, and he'd look up, and half an hour had gone by. Now, he says, I find myself, my mind wandering 
within a paragraph. And be honest, because of this, I suspect as I've been talking, your mind has wandered three or four, maybe 15 times as I've been talking here, because this world that we live in now is causing us to lose our concentration. And that's called, what do we call it? Neuroplasticity. Let's take a good example. This is a study done of uh, violinists. You know, if you watch the orchestra here, those individuals playing the violin, that part of their brain having to do with their fingers is much larger than it was when they were first getting Suzuki uh, lessons and things of that nature. And you know that, of course, in this case, the brain grows because you are actually using those neural fibers and other neural fibers begin to develop. And if you've done any kind of athletics, we talk about that as being what? Muscle memory. Well, it isn't the muscles that have memory. It's the brain does. You know, whether you're trying to hit a golf ball, hit a tennis racket, shoot a shotgun, uh, fly, do fly fishing, whatever, that part comes more and more natural because you begin to build those neural way roads that actually take place but it isn't just in terms of muscle it's also in terms of perception this study uh, found that london taxi drivers that have been on the job a longer period of time than the new kids on the block actually have their posterior hippocampus which is associated with spatial data as much larger than those which would suggest if you're going to look for a taxi driver get one that's been driving a taxi for a while or maybe taxi drivers will do better than say an uber or lyft or something like that because again as you use those parts of your brain they actually begin to develop and so we recognize again the key word there is neuroplasticity the brain is much more plastic than you might think and so as a result as we begin to use these new devices they are actually rewiring our brain in significant ways. Now, for the old folks in here, our brains are pretty solid, but even there, we're finding some of our brains are being affected. Well, when you give a, like an iPhone to a five-year-old, or you have them spending even 10 years of age in front of a computer all day, you can see how it's actually mapping the brain. And so we see things like addiction, distraction, depression, overload that are starting to surface, especially as we've gone through this year of a pandemic and a lockdown and uh, tried to kid ourselves that we're going to be educating these kids. Can you imagine putting a 10-year-old in front of a computer all day and think that's going to be education? And that's exactly the kind of the social experiment we've been going through. I'm not the only one talking about this. And as a matter of fact, Nicholas Carr's not the only one talking about this. Here is uh, Stephen Kotler. This appeared in Psychology Today a number of years ago. Constantly using Twitter is reducing the time of concentration to a few dozen words. He says, Twitter can tune the brain to reading and comprehending information at 140 characters at a time. Now we've increased it to 280. But still, you can just think about the challenge that Pastor Graham has. The challenge any pastor has, maybe even the challenge I have right now, because everybody's kind of just used to picking everything up in about 280 characters. And that is a world that we are finding ourselves in and causing some people to rethink how much time you spend in front of your digital device. A couple other quick issues before we wind it down, and that is there are all sorts of people that have been surfacing questions about the issue of concentration. You know, you're walking along, your phone goes off, it buzzes or it beeps, and you look at it, and then you go, now, where was I? What was I doing before that? 
you know, some of us old enough, we walk into a room and say, why did I walk into this room? You know, but this is one of those things that comes from distraction. And you've been in meetings, no doubt, where people are on their phone and they say, well, I'm paying attention because I can multitask. We've done brain studies. You do not multitask. You think you multitask. It's continuous partial attention. There's no such thing really as multitasking. And whatever you're focused on, the other part of that only gets at best 40% of your attention. Which is why if you go to certain states, not Texas, you cannot be on your phone when you're driving. But if you've been driving down George Bush Freeway, you've seen some people on their phone and you say, I'm going to give them wide berth because they are probably not focused on the road. And that's a concern. One other C, concentration, creativity. Okay, I'll admit, I just love TED Talks. But it's amazing how many of these TED Talks have come up recently talking about the complete precipitable drop in creativity. And some people think it's because we are just now in these digital worlds. There's no think time. There's no downtime. And if you think about this, some of the more creative ideas you've ever come up with maybe happened when your mind was in neutral. You're driving. You're in the shower. Uh, for the women, it's when you're doing your hair. Men, when you're shaving, it's when you have a chance to have some think time. And creativity is dropped Uh, tremendously now, and even the secular world understands that. Finally, I did mention addiction. George Barn has been on the program with me before, and I remember when that article came out about media addiction, and I thought, yeah, everything's an addiction. But then he convinced me, when you look at the various criteria for addiction, and then what happens if you want to take a cell phone away from a young person? And I've had closer relationships to that because one of my colleagues at Probe used to teach at the University of Texas at Dallas in media and especially in technology. And one of the things he asked the students to do is have a 24-hour media fast. Now, how did they do that? They were to hand over their cell phone to him. He put it in the drawer for two days. As you might imagine, there were a lot of students that were willing to take a zero on that because they could not imagine their lives two days without a phone. And those who did came in sweating after two days because they just had to get that phone back. And that, to me, looks like addiction. Well, as we come down here, you know, some people, when they hear this, say, well, wait a minute, you know, this is just reality. And I live in the real world. I think all of us are going to want to watch the Olympics today, and we can have some fun. Hey, it's just killing time. There's a time to go to a movie and just zone out. That's just great, you know. It won't affect me. I think I showed that it is. It's just entertainment. Yes, but it's a lot more than that. And my goal here today is simply to get you thinking about the media and being a wise consumer of it. After all, we should uh, certainly think God's thoughts after him. We should take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that's really what we're talking about here today. And if you find yourself saying, well, I'd like to know a little bit more about this, at our website, probe.org, we've got whole chapters and weeks of programs on discernment and the new media, sex and violence, whole sections on music, film, and the Christian. Matter of fact, one of our books up here is Arts, Media, and Culture that uh, we make available today to any of our visitors here if you wanted to read more about about that, uh, that uh, these matter of fact, two of these books are up there right now. In case you're a visitor today, you're going to have access to one of those. And then, of course, I have uh, about uh, two dozen of these which are available at the front. 
So again, my goal is not to now collect all of your cell phones and take them out there and dump them in the fountain. I'll tell you never to watch media again. But it is an attempt, at least, to get us thinking biblically about what we see, what we read, what we hear. And to think every thought after God and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ.